Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Tom Harbin here. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. It's supported by advertising. So after this brief message, we'll get right into it. Guys, let's talk sex, good sex. You can increase your performance and get that extra confidence with bluechew.com. It's blue, like the color. Blue Chew is the first chewable with the same FDA-approved ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. You can take it anytime, even on a full stomach. Blue Chew is prescribed online, shipped straight to your door in a discreet package, so no in-person doctor's visit, no waiting in the pharmacy, and best of all, no more awkwardness. Made in the USA. And since Bluetooth prepares and ships direct, they're cheaper than a pharmacy. Right now, we've got a special deal for our listeners. Visit bluechew.com and get your first shipment free when you use the special promo code TOM, T-H-O-M. Just pay five bucks for shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E-Chew.com, promo code TOM, to try it for free. Bluetooth is the better, cheaper, faster choice, and we thank them for sponsoring our podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Cokeland, The Secret History of Coke Industries and Corporate Power in America by Christopher Leonard. This is from the preface. On May 18, 1981, four Wall Street bankers traveled to Wichita, Kansas. They went there to make an offer to Charles Koch, the CEO of an obscure mid-size energy company. The bankers from Morgan Stanley wanted to convince Koch to take his family's company public, offering shares for sale on the New York Stock Exchange. Their deal was squarely in line with the conventional wisdom of corporate America at the time. Going public was seen as a natural progression for companies like Koch Industries, offering them access to big pools of money and promising enormous paydays for the existing team of executives. All it required from the CEO was to surrender control. Morgan Stanley, in return, would collect a small fortune in fees. Charles Koch was 45 years old. He had run Koch Industries since he was 32 and his father died suddenly. He was trim, tall, and had an athlete's build. He spoke quietly in meetings and seemed almost passive. The bankers laid out their plan to take Koch public. They revealed what, to most executives at least, might have been the most significant detail. If Charles Koch agreed to the deal, he could earn $20 million overnight. The bankers seemed incredulous when they prepared a confidential memo about Koch's reaction. He does not want this cash, the memo reported. Charles Koch calmly explained to them why their offer made no sense. His company was breathtakingly profitable. It operated in vital, deeply complex corners of the American energy industry. During the 1980s, Koch Industries was the largest purchaser and transporter of U.S. crude oil. It owned an oil refinery. It employed teams of commodity traders who bought and sold a wildly diverse menu of raw materials and financial products, from gasoline to paper futures contracts. 
This might have encouraged most CEOs to take their company public. Coke Industries, however, did not want outsiders to know how much money its traders were earning. Taking the company public would expose too many of its secrets. The memo said, certain of Coke's commodity traders are particularly worried that their high salaries, once disclosed to the public, would be used against them by their trading partners. Secrecy was a strategic necessity for Coke Industries. Charles Koch did not want to surrender it. He also didn't want to surrender control. He had a specific, clear vision of how to run his company, and he didn't need Wall Street investors to interfere. If the bankers expected Charles Koch to go along with the conventional wisdom of their time, then they, like so many outsiders, did not understand him. Beneath his low-key veneer, Charles Koch was, at his core, a fighter. He had unmovable ideas about how things should be, and he did not back down when challenged. When he was challenged by his own brothers for control of Koch Industries, he fought them in a bitter legal battle that lasted decades. When he was challenged by members of a powerful labor union during his first years as CEO, he fought them even as they committed an act of industrial sabotage that nearly destroyed Koch's oil refinery. When the FBI and the U.S. Department of Justice launched a criminal investigation into Koch Industries' oil gathering business, Charles Koch fought them with every legal and political tool at his disposal. When a liberal Congress and President Barack Obama sought to impose regulations on the fossil fuel industry to control greenhouse gas emissions, Charles Koch fought them in ways that changed U.S. politics. In each of these fights, Charles Koch prevailed. When Charles Koch dismissed the bankers in 1981, it was just a small skirmish in the larger war to control Koch Industries. After prevailing in that fight, he created a company that was true to his vision. He avoided the snares that entangled many publicly traded companies that report their financial results to investors every three months. Koch Industries didn't have to think quarter to quarter. The company thinks year to year. An internal think tank and deal-making committee called the Development Group will sometimes think through a business deal on a timeline measured in decades. This long-term view made Koch more nimble where other companies stumbled. In 2003, for example, Koch Industries bought a group of money-losing fertilizer plants when no publicly traded company was willing to take the risk. Today, those plants are as profitable as a broken ATM machine that spews out cash around the clock. Unlike publicly traded companies, Koch Industries does not pay out rich in dividends to investors. Charles Koch insists on reinvesting at least 90% of the company's profits, fueling its constant expansion. This strategy laid the foundation for decades of continuous growth. Koch Industries expanded continuously by purchasing other companies and branching out into new industries. It specialized in the kind of businesses that are indispensable to modern civilization, but which most consumers never directly encounter. The company is embedded in the hidden infrastructure of everyday life. Millions of people use Koch's products without ever seeing Koch's name attached. Coke refines and distributes fossil fuels from gasoline to jet fuel on which the global economy is dependent. Coke is the world's third largest producer of nitrogen fertilizer, which is the cornerstone of our modern food system. Coke makes the synthetic materials used in baby diapers, waistbands, and carpets. It makes the chemicals used for plastic bottles and pipes. It owns Georgia Pacific, which makes the wall panels, beams, and plywood required to build homes and office buildings. It makes napkins, paper towels, stationery, newspaper, and personal hygiene products. Coke Industries owns a network of commodities trading offices in Houston, Moscow, Geneva, and elsewhere, which are the circulatory system of modern finance. The book Cokeland by Christopher Leonard.
This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to the Tom Hartman Program, broadcasting on commercial radio stations from coast to coast on Sirius XM all across the North American continent, on Pacifica stations across America, Europe, and Africa, on American Forces Radio, and every U.S. military base in the world, and your electronic device on Dish Network, DirecTV, and cable systems all over the country. I had a great time at the Opera Theater Portland over at the Alberta Rose Theater on Alberta Street here in Portland on Saturday and Sunday playing the old-timey radio announcer. It was spectacular. I had an opportunity to say hi to a lot of folks who uh, listened to the program, who dropped by, and thank you for showing up if you were one of them. On Saturday, I was able to say hi to people and shake hands and sign things. On Sunday, I had to run right afterwards back to the green room for some just kind of wrap-up stuff that had to do with the uh, performance. And uh, so if I missed you, I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, there'll be other events here in town. But that was great. Today is also Women's Equality Day, hashtag Women's Equality Day. And Minnie me posted on Saturday over on DU something that, boy, I remember this. The following list is a list of nine things that a woman couldn't do in 1971. Now, Louise and I were married in 1972, and... I remember in 73 and 74, we were running a business. In fact, by 74, we were running a pretty good business in Michigan and trying to get a credit card for Louise. And the credit card companies would only issue a credit card to her if it was basically in my name and I signed her application because I was her husband. Right? It wasn't until 1974 that we got a law that said that credit card companies had to give credit cards to women assuming that they were creditworthy, without demanding their husband's signature. It wasn't until 1978 that we passed a law that said that women couldn't get fired for becoming pregnant. It wasn't until 1973 that women could serve on juries in all 50 states. Why? Because they were too fragile to hear the grisly details of crimes and too sympathetic by nature to hand down harsh sentences, right? It wasn't until 1976 that women were, for all practical purposes, admitted into the real military. Up until 1973, women were only allowed in the military to serve as nurses or support staff. It wasn't until the 70s that that a woman could get an Ivy League education. It wasn't until 1977 that workplace sexual harassment was outlawed. It wasn't until 1993 that spousal rape was outlawed. Women couldn't obtain health insurance at the same cost as a man until 2010. It wasn't until the mid-1970s that the birth control pill, I mean, it became available nationwide in 1961, but but it wasn't until the mid-70s that all the states made it legal. I mean, they had actually outlawed it in many states, and, and a lot of pharmacies refused to carry it. Pretty amazing stuff. So, anyhow, happy Women's Equality Day. We've come a long way. And we still have a long way to go. So Donald Trump was just at the G7, and he just did a joint press conference with President Macron. And then he also did a standalone press conference. And it was interesting watching it. I was watching on CNN. And what was so amazing was that the reporters were amazed that Trump was lying through his teeth. The reporter from PBS actually asked him a question and then just said, why do you keep lying about this? Or words to that effect. 
And Trump just like blase, just kind of ignored it. He said something and then he contradicted himself minutes later on a couple of occasions. Last Friday, when China raised tariffs a modest 5% on some American goods, Trump freaked out and just basically went nuts. And it kind of crashed the world's stock markets. And so this morning he said, oh, no, China has called us and they want to make a deal. Right. They want to make a deal They're They're looking forward to this. Everything's going to be good. Interestingly, I think it's Fox News is reporting that China is saying, no, we never called. <laughs> we didn't do that. We, we didn't do that. So we'll see where this goes. The Amazon is on fire. Leonardo DiCaprio, along with I think her name is Lorraine Jobs, the widow of Steve Jobs and a couple of other people have put together this new nonprofit for the environment, to help save the environment. And they just kicked in $5 million to save the Amazon. So we'll see where that goes. David Koch has died, which got me thinking. David Koch, of course, he ran for vice president on the libertarian ticket in 1980. Libertarians famously believe that capitalism is more important than democracy. And in in fact, numerous libertarians have said that right here on this program, including Stephen Moore. Anyhow, this got me thinking about the stepping stones or the milestones on the path to oligarchy here in the United States. David Koch certainly played a role in that, as does his brother Charles on an ongoing basis, you know, kind of making American politics safe for oligarchy. But, you know, I was just thinking back. We go through these cycles. We saw a rise of the oligarchs in the late 1800s. Then Teddy Roosevelt and uh, William Howard Taft, two progressive Republican presidents, took them down in the 19 aughts and 19 teens. And then they came back with the election of 1920 with uh, Warren Harding and then uh, Coolidge and then Hoover. And then the oligarchs kind of fell. The path to oligarchy went backwards with the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt being reelected or being elected and then reelected a total of four times and then Harry Truman. And basically, the oligarchs were kind of standing on the outside looking in from the 1930s until the 1980s, when Reagan brought the oligarchs back into government and back into business and put it all back on track. And this was largely the result of the 1971 Powell Memo and the 1976 and 78 Supreme Court decisions, Buckley and First National Bank, the second actually written by Lewis Powell. By the way, my new book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. I go through that in the book and, you know, talk about this whole thing about, you know, how the Supreme Court basically opened the path to oligarchy. And it raises a really interesting question. You know, is that cycle about to end? Is it possible that that cycle is about to end? You know, I really think that if Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders become the Democratic nominees, And, you know, a fascinating piece in The New York Times by Jennifer Rubin about how incredibly weak Donald Trump is in all the polling right across the board in all the demographics that actually count, that virtually any Democrat, Seth Moulton, who pulled out of the race, could probably beat Donald Trump. So assuming that Trump is going to be the nominee, and that's not necessarily a safe assumption, I'm going to get to that in just a second. But assuming that he's the nominee, Democrats should pick whatever nominee they want for their party, we want for our party, that we think will actually 
bring us the values, bring us back to the values that the Democratic Party was founded on, or not necessarily founded on, but certainly established itself in the modern era in the 1930s with the Franklin Roosevelt administration, which, you know, in my opinion, of course, would be one of the two very strong progressives, uh, Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, but others may be moving, well, actually seem to be moving in that direction. And this could give oligarchy a run for its money. But speaking of Donald Trump being on the ticket, here's, let me throw a curveball and just an absolute screaming curveball. There was a Women for Trump rally at the Tampa Convention Center, and Kellyanne Conway and Nikki Haley were there. And this was just a couple days after Nikki Haley had said that there were false rumors surrounding her relationship with Mike Pence, not suggesting that he was, you know, being unfaithful to mother, but rather that they didn't get along. And she said, that's a false rumor. She said, he's been a loyal and trustworthy vice president, and he has her complete support. Now, this is really interesting because at the same time, Kellyanne Conway is tweeting, yes, Mike Pence is definitely, quote, will be on the ticket, promise. Which is causing me to wonder, is a palace coup underway? I mean, the Republicans have to be looking at this just like all the rest of us are and realizing there's no way that Donald Trump is going to get reelected president. You know, he's getting more incoherent every day. He's an embarrassment to the Republicans. I mean, he's going to lose like no president in the history of America has ever lost. So the adults in the room, in quotes, you know, the billionaires and the oligarchs are, in my opinion, they're going to step in and say, you know, Trump can't be on the ticket. It looks to me like Nikki Haley and Mike Pence are working something out. And if the nominee on the Democratic side is Elizabeth Warren, a woman, or even Bernie Sanders, a very pro-feminist man, on the Republican side, if they keep Mike Pence on as vice president and Nikki Haley becomes the nominee for president, or it becomes Mike Pence and Nikki Haley as VP, that could give the Democrats a real run for their money. Putting a woman on the ticket, a woman of color on the ticket. And she is good. Nikki Haley is good. You know, she was in the Trump administration and she got out unsullied. So I don't know where this is going. I honestly don't. I'm just speculating. Just following a few of the rabbit holes that I've been going down in my mind here. But I think these are interesting questions. Uh, as the Amazon is on fire and the Democratic Party refuses to hold a debate focused on climate change, an Australian think tank has come out with a report suggesting the possibility that climate change could destroy human civilization within as little as 30 years. Now, just think where you'll be 30 years from now. Climate change has already destroyed civilization in Syria. And by the way, it's taking a chunk out of Guatemala right now. As it expands across the planet, it could take the rest of us with it. Considering this chaotic possibility, governments need to reconfigure both their political and their military positions to radically reduce the chance of nuclear disaster and focus on completely decarbonizing our economy. This is a massive project and absolutely necessary, literally reconfiguring the world in order to save humanity. You know, we do a lot of important stuff throughout the day, but without a good night's sleep, all that important stuff 
<laughs> it just doesn't work quite as well. You know, the, as, as they say at, at, uh, at eight sleep, the better you sleep, the better you everything. And you want to sleep better? Get the pod. It's, the, it's this amazing new high-tech bed. It's the ultimate sleep machine. It's like the Tesla beds. Um, it helps you sleep deeper and it helps you sleep longer and better. And, and how it does all this is it dynamically is measuring your temperature and your, and your movement throughout the night and adjusting the temperature. This bed can cool itself down or warm itself up and it does it in response to your needs. You don't have to sit there and do the diet. It knows what's going on with your body by measuring your own body as you're sleeping. Try the pod for 100 nights. If you don't love it, they'll refund your purchase and arrange your free pickup only at 8sleep.com slash Tom. That's E-I-G-H-T sleep.com. They sold out their first two batches. They're going fast for a limited time. You can get 150 bucks off your purchase when you go to 8sleep.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash Tom. Tom Hartman here with you. Another issue that I wanted to bring up. Bernie came out with his $15 trillion plan. Very ambitious. It not only pays for itself, but it creates millions of jobs. I think it's brilliant. Elizabeth Warren has a plan that's not as ambitious as Bernie's, but it moves in the same direction. And I'm sure other of the Democratic nominees have as well. But increasingly, in my opinion, it's looking like our nominee is either going to be Joe Biden, Elizabeth, or Bernie. I mean, we'll see. It's possible it'll be somebody else, but those are the clear front runners, and everybody else is either fighting for vice president or trying to raise their visibility so they can run for the Senate or ensure a spot for themselves as a commentator on Fox News or MSNBC or something. I mean, you know, everybody seems to have an agenda these days. Steve in Napa, California. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, I just wanted to talk about Google changing their algorithms over from most popular sites to taking some of those sites down, like Alex Jones, like, you know, most famously, that, that type of thing. Right. And whether, as communities, we could maybe be working towards something like creating our own libraries and indexes of sites and categories and that kind of thing to uh, keep the information open to what kind of information we want rather than having it in the hands of a, a telecom only. Yeah, or, or a giant corporation. You know, we are so far into monopoly in the United States right now. Until government just steps in and starts saying, you know, wait a minute, you, you can do this, but you can't do that, right? It's a, I don't see any way to take on any of these big companies, whether it's Google or Facebook or Twitter or the various social media companies. I mean, there are alternatives to Facebook, Vimeo and things like that, but none of them even scratched the surface in terms of market share. So, or were you suggesting that we simply build websites and point to Yeah, point actually to, point I've done YouTube some work on videos. my own in that regard, you know, just trying to get stories that really uh, encapsulate everything real clearly. Yeah. But I think it is, a, it's, it is a doable project, and I think there are a lot of people out there that are really kind of lost as of what to do constructively, and I think going back to the community level, and, you know, you can even create some discussion forums that hopefully are civil and you can be a little more confident that, you know, it's not a Russian bot or that kind of thing if you have the right 
ideas in place to secure for that you know who yeah. you're talking to. Yeah, but putting together a, a directory of some kind seems like a good idea. Steve, thanks for the call. Let's see here, Frank in Thompson Falls, Montana. Hey, Frank, you're on the air. Yeah, I was just wondering, how does a person temper their rage against the Trump administration and carry on a productive life? I mean, it's getting to the point of being ridiculous. And I, you know, write poetry, ride my motorcycle, try to alienate myself from the Trumpsters. But living in the middle of Trump land, it's impossible. Yeah. Plus, I was kind of curious on why there aren't more people like the people in Hong Kong, you know, protesting in the streets. Here in the United States. Correct. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> and, and, you know, you know, protesting the Trump administration. It's like we've got, frankly, I think what a lot of it was that we all thought that the Mueller report was going to take down Trump. You know, that was going to be the end of it. But obviously it didn't. Bill Barr got in there and, Frank, thank you for the call. Bill Barr got in there and said, oh, you know, nothing to see here. Donald Trump is fine. There was no collusion. There's no, you know. And, you know, of course, Bill Barr, our attorney general, lied to us. <laughs> but what can you do? I think that the day may come, and I think it will come with an economic downturn, frankly. So, you know, we'll see where this goes. Omar in Herndon, Virginia. Hey, Omar, what's up? Tom, thanks so much for taking my call, and good day to you. Uh, Tom, your comment earlier by Nikki Haley, I think that's a very good point, because she was the first one to leave the Trump administration. Yeah. Yeah, she was the first one, and I think she always had uh, ambition. Well, she's always, I think she's always wanted to be president or senator or something. She's very ambitious. I mean, you know, she became yeah. the governor of what, South Carolina, as I recall. Tom, what I want to talk about uh, in terms of uh, what is the deadline? Okay, for example, if we don't increase Trump by this date, it's too late. You know, there is no I'm deadline. Right now, the simple fact of the matter is that he is not going to be removed from office by the Senate. And that's why I keep saying they should just go ahead and impeach him in the House and not even refer it to the Senate and simply let it be a record for history that you don't do this when you're president. And we don't elect these kinds of people for president. Exactly. And I think also put a stand on his record and let us all participate in the impeachment by voting him out 2020. So yeah. everybody would have an opportunity to vote for impeaching him by removing him from office by the election. Let the election be the impeachment, where all the citizens participate. Well, I think the election is going to be functionally an impeachment, and this is assuming that Trump makes it through to the election. I mean, he's got people now who are challenging, who want to challenge him in a primary. Bill Weld, actually there have been like three of them now. The most fascinating possibility is that Mike Pence and Nikki Haley behind the scenes are working it out to shuttle Trump off to the side. That's going to be real interesting. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. And that could play out like the NRA thing, where, you know, if you're going to take on the king, you've got to topple the king, right? Uh, this is Wayne LaPierre. Trump could do the same thing to his own party. So picture your face in the mirror. You see all those wrinkles around your eyes, and crow's feet and under eye bags. Now, just imagine that they're all gone. I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery, just gone in minutes. There's a product that does this, it's called Plexiderm. It's a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it? I didn't either until I tried it. Now I don't have to imagine anymore. I look like me just 10 years younger. Simply put, I'm blown away by the results. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends. And the best part is Plexiderm goes on clear, so nobody will know you're using it. 
unless you tell them, of course. Go to Plexiderm.com and use my code TOM, T-H-O-M, for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling one 800 685-1292 and mentioning the code TOM, T-H-O-M. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit TriPlexiderm.com and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at checkout. That's TriPlexiderm.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is by P.E. Moskowitz. It's The Case Against Free Speech, The First Amendment, Fascism, and the Future of Dissent. This is from the introduction. This book is not anti-free speech. It is anti the concept of free speech. It's an important distinction. Everyone should have the right to say what they want. I will not argue otherwise. I am not an authoritarian. In this book, I will not argue that the United States should adopt laws banning racist speech, like the ones that have proliferated throughout Europe, for example. I think those laws are often counterproductive and end up being used against leftists instead of against racists. I won't argue that Nazi speech should be outlawed as it is in Germany. I won't argue that the First Amendment should be reformed nor more firmly upheld. This book is not about whether the First Amendment is good or bad. This book is about why the First Amendment is nearly irrelevant, except in its power as a propaganda tool. In the following chapters, I will argue that free speech as a concept is meaningless, that it is a dialectical smokescreen more than an ideal to be upheld, that in a grossly unequal society, in which a few corporations control the means of media dissemination and a small group of the ultra-wealthy bankroll entire political movements, there can be no meaningful definition of free speech. On paper, I'm as free to speak as a billionaire, yet I do not have the power to change laws through political donations, to influence college curricula, or to quash entire movements for economic liberation. And still, I hold more speech power than most. I am a published author, and my speech is sanctified by the gatekeepers of my publishing house. Therefore, the path to free speech, I will argue, has less to do with a law about speech, or many laws, than with ending racism and inequality. Throughout U.S. history, disparate groups have claimed to cherish free speech more than their enemies. Unionists in the 1920s saw free speech as synonymous with striking and ultimately class revolution. Today, conservatives of the group to most often shroud their politics in free speech, arguing that any silencing or protesting of their speech runs counter to U.S. values of freedom and liberty for all. But as I hope to prove in this book, free speech has never really existed because freedom and liberty have never really existed for the vast majority of Americans. Instead, this U.S. has systematically acted against those values, suppressing the opportunities, speech, movements, and actions of the masses, especially people of color and anti-capitalists, in order to favor the free flow of capital to the owning class. This oppression and suppression have been constant since the founding of this country, and therefore free speech is a hollow signifier pointing to a past that never existed. The funny thing about free speech is that it's been used to fight for and against these liberties, both as a guise for the wealthy and powerful to oppress the poor, like the Koch brothers and their supporters using free speech to push through anti-democratic legislation and rip apart campaign finance laws, and as a rhetorical tool for the working class to further their cause, as happened in the early 1900s when leftists argued that free speech includes the freedom to riot, and the ACLU argued it was the only way to prevent a violent revolution. I don't argue that one definition of free speech is more legitimate than the other, 
but that they are all relatively empty signifiers, hiding more tangible structures of power and ideas underneath them. So why write a book on free speech if I think the term is essentially meaningless? Because the concept holds so much weight in our country. We argue endlessly about whether it's being trampled on, whether college students hate it, whether the government is adequately upholding it, but we rarely ask what free speech is or how we got to the free speech crisis we supposedly face today. When you scratch the surface of conversations over free speech, you find more difficult issues underneath. It's much easier to talk about the ability of conservatives to speak on college campuses than about the systemic racism, sexism, and transphobia college students experience. And those are the things students who protest campus visits by right-wing conservatives are actually fighting against. It's easier to fantasize about a country that values free speech than to grapple with the fact that we place so much emphasis on free speech while jailing dissidents and allowing tens of millions to live in poverty. What is free speech to someone who works 60 hours a week and has no time nor any platform to use their supposed right? There is relatively little literature and philosophy on free speech, despite the fact that it has been in constant contention since the founding of this country. Even the legal history of the First Amendment is sparse for something so foundational to the values of our country. A few have seriously grappled with ideas of what free speech does and does not mean, most notably literary theorist Stanley Fish, who has argued that the term does not mean much at all. Leftists like Noam Chomsky have written about free speech tangentially in their explorations of media as a propaganda tool. Most history books on speech are written as hagiographies, unquestioning the intent of the Founding Fathers and their morals. This is not a definitive account of free speech, but a necessary intervention, prodding us to be more critical of the term, and maybe along with it, of the other lofty concepts we must hold near and dear. In The Case Against Free Speech by P.E. Moskowitz, the subtitle of First Amendment, Fascism, and the Future of Dissent, a really thought-provoking book. I mean, just raised all kinds of stuff for me that I had frankly never considered. I had been one of these people who has just always fetishized free speech. And so, uh, you know, I was uh, really excited to have the possibility of getting P.E. Moskowitz on this program. P.E. has been a writer for Al Jazeera America, Work has appeared in numerous other publications, including The Guardian, The New York Times, and New Yorker, author also of How to Kill a City and their latest, The Case Against Free Speech, The First Amendment, Fascism, and the Future of Dissent. P.E. Moskowitz, welcome to the program. What do we get wrong? These iconic moments, you know, like the ACLU defending the right of Nazis, literal Nazis, this is back in the 60s, to march through the streets of a largely Jewish uh, Skokie, Illinois, that, that had a large number of Holocaust survivors in it. We all seem to think that that's a wonderful sort of thing. What do we get wrong about free speech? Yeah, uh, well, I could probably take a few hours <laughs> addressing all the things we get wrong. Oh, we got about um, 10 minutes. But- <laughs> well, just to sum up my argument, it's that we think of free speech as this apolitical concept that, you know, kind of applies equally to everyone. That, you know, even if we've had little hiccups and bumps in our history, that free speech has been used for the public good and that there's nothing more to it, really. I mean, what I found in my book and through my reporting is that that's simply not true, that free speech is a political tool that's kind of up for grabs by whoever wants it. And I think it's most successfully been used by the far right to kind of push their noxious agenda anywhere from, you know, the alt-right to literal Nazis, as you said. It's much easier to accept them 
kind of infiltrating our society if we place it under the guise of free speech. The, the Charlottesville rally where Heather Heyer was murdered was billed as a, quote, free speech rally. We see all over the country on college campuses people who are just basically presenting abhorrent views shoehorned in under the rubric of free speech. How did we get here and what do we do about this? Mm -hmm. So free speech, contrary to what we're usually taught, um, you know, was never really an ideal upheld by the Founding Fathers. As soon as the First Amendment was written into law, people were arrested and jailed for their speech. Political leaders would shut down newspapers that they didn't like. Are you talking uh, about John Adams mm -hmm. and the Alien Sedition Acts? I mean, that, w that was only for two years. Yeah, exactly. Right, but John Adams is seen as one of our great political leaders, or some people think that. Yeah, I don't, and, uh, uh, but anyway, yeah. Right. <laughs> so that just goes to show you that it was never actually an ideal for most political leaders, more than it, and it was more a rhetorical tool. Um, but when you look at modern history and um, really the last 40 years, there's been a very purposeful attempt by the kind of usual suspects of millionaires and billionaires like the Koch brothers um, who got together in the 70s and literally wrote this down with their policy advisors, basically said, how do we push our agenda? No one's going to buy environmental deregulation or tax cuts for the rich. So we have to frame it in a different way. And they came up with this system to essentially use free speech and the free marketplace, which are very linked terms, uh, to... Uh, push the idea that anything that got in their way of conducting their business, anything that made them less money was a violation of their free speech. So when you fast forward to now, we have all the scholarship that was essentially paid for by those millionaires and billionaires that <clears throat> uphold that idea. And so I think one of the greatest tricks ever uh, pulled by the Koch brothers um, and all their friends uh, was to convince uh, liberals to, you know, defend Nazis, defend the rights of billionaires, to say whatever they want and do whatever they want, all under the guise of free speech. And that was a very purposeful tactic. Well, and, and, and it, it, it hit, uh, arguably, its, its high point in 1976 when the U.S. Supreme Court, for the first time in the history of the United States, said that the, the free speech which is protected under the First Amendment, this is in the Buckley versus Vallejo decision, that the free speech mm -hmm. that is protected under the First Amendment does not just include what you may say or publish, but it includes how you spend your money. So if you want to buy right. a politician or if you want to buy, you know, if you want to carpet bomb a state with advertising for or against a particular issue or candidate, that is your right because the First Amendment guarantees your right of free speech. This was, you know, then doubled and tripled down on by the Citizens United and McCutcheon and, well, First National Bank versus Bilotti extended it from individuals. That was two years later in 78, extended it to corporations. Should we slice and dice this a little bit? The right of a person to stand up and say something should be, you know, outside of yelling fire in a crowded theater, something that we really should honor and respect and, and keep at law. But the right of a billionaire to say that spending money is free speech, you know, that the Supreme Court was basically wrong. I mean, is that is that a, a demarcation point? Um, I mean, I, I don't know if that's the specific demarcation point, but the point of the book is to um, kind of inform people that there's always a demarcation point between uh, what is speech and what is action. So, And that, that's existed forever. We think of it as this kind of, you know, we're free to say whatever we want, but that's simply not true. You, if you harass someone, uh, that's, you know, a form of speech, but it's also illegal. I can say whatever I want in my house, but if I walk into someone else's house and say it, that's also illegal. So we already have limits on our free speech and where we draw that line between, you know, let's say saying Nazis can speak and, and others can't or uh, 
or billionaires can spend their money. That's that's totally based on our current political and economic realities. And funnily enough, the the shouting fire quote, you know, it's often mis uh, it's often misrepresented because it was uh, from a decision that is now overturned that had nothing to do with shouting fire, but uh, was about arresting political dissidents during World War One and mm. saying they were shouting fire. So, uh, and th- that was passed. That was law for many decades. It was overturned, I think, in the 80s or 70s. Um, but yeah, it just goes to show you, like, the most famous quote about free speech was actually about arresting leftists and progressives in the name of uh, waging war. <laughs> right. Even if the bottom line is that most of the time in the last century or so, that the rubric of free speech or the this whole, you know, meme of free speech has been used to defend somebody or defend something has been to defend Nazis and billionaires, there's still a dimension of free speech that we really need to honor and respect, is there not? Uh, Yeah, definitely. I mean, as I say in the book, you know, I'm not anti-speech. I'm not anti-people getting out there and voicing their opinion. I think, you know, I don't want the government creating new laws that will limit speech. Um, My point is that uh, speech isn't equal until our society is more equal. So in my view, it's almost more an economic problem and a problem of democracy uh, than it is a problem of one or two laws to ban certain speech and favor other speech. You know, uh, so, uh, uh, as you read in my intro, someone working 60 hours a week, someone imprisoned, immigrants deported or jailed for years on end, are those not free speech issues? Um, because they have less of a right to speak than I do, and I have less of a right to speak than a millionaire or a billionaire. Right, right. So where do we start? Is there, do you have you know, a proposal, a legislative suggestion, uh, or is this a call to culture? I think it's more of the latter to re-politicize the topic of free speech. I don't think there's one policy we can kind of hinge our hopes on, but in the same way that we view the Second Amendment as an overtly political one, right? We know it's influenced by lobbyists. We know that it's really contentious. The First Amendment uh, doesn't really get the same treatment at all. And I think we need to start looking into treating this rhetoric of free speech as not just, um, you know, uh, truth, uh, truth that applies equally to all, but see who's influencing it, see who's kind of behind the curtains making us think free speech means a certain thing. Well, wouldn't a good starting point, though, be overturning Buckley? Yeah, I mean, I would be in favor of that, too. (laughs) Just saying, sorry, money is not speech. As a kind of rigorous starting point, it seems, Buckley and Citizens United and all its spawn. It's a fascinating proposition and uh, an extraordinarily thought-provoking book. P.E. Moskowitz is the author of the book, is The Case Against Free Speech, the First Amendment, Fascism, and the Future of Dissent. P.E., thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you. You know, we're hearing all about CBD oil. It's, you know, and CBD in general. I mean, you know, it's in the news. It's, you know, a company, they're putting it in soda pop now, actually. But if you really want the health benefits of CBD, you need to take pure CBD oil. And, you know, it's, it's non-intoxicating. And by, by the way, the brand that Louise and I use is New Leaf Naturals, N-U Leaf Naturals. Um, at their website, newleafnaturals.com. Uh, CBD oil is not intoxicating. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's non-toxic. It has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. And the brand, as I mentioned, that I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. And New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. 
It's 100% organic. It's highly concentrated. It contains no additional additives. It's grown in the United States, and the only ingredient is hemp. So it's in its pure and simple form. It's safe. It's legal. Go to newleafnaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com. Save 30% off and receive free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. That's newleafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness is only one place, newleafnaturals.com. So let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, Alan Ratner's new book on the line with us, former Ohio Congressman Bob Ney and uh, author of Sideswiped, the story of how D.C. really works. Hey, Bob, what's going on in the world today? Hello, Tom. Well, I wanted to go over in a part of the world for the G7. There were several things, but there's something I think really big that came out of here that was unplanned. But the first common information that's coming out of there was that President Trump has said he believes China is sincere in wanting a new trade deal. Now we've been hearing China talk about having a, quote, calm type of situation now. And then French President Macron and Trump both agreed that Iran must never have nuclear arms, is what they said jointly together. And then the statement, I don't know if you've covered this yet, but President Trump claimed today that Russian President Vladimir Putin outsmarted, quote, President Obama when he annexed the Crimea in 2014 and that Russia was expelled from the G8 because Obama was upset at having been outmaneuvered. Right, I saw that. I heard that. Right. And Which that doesn't comport with history. Yeah, that's not even near history. So right. I just did want to mention that that came out of there. And then President Trump is pushing for Russia to be allowed to rejoin the now G7 club and make it to G8 again. And then he also announced, the president did, that next year's summit in America will, quote, probably be held in Miami at one of his golf resorts. Right, the Doral. He did an ad for his own golf resort. Yeah, I'm on, right out front, on international in front, television. Of the, front of the world. Yeah. But the big deal about this is that, and we're finding out more information than we had this morning when I put out the news, but the big deal is that Javed Zarif, who is the foreign minister of Iran, who put together the deal on behalf of Iran, the nuclear deal with uh, President Obama and the European nations and China and Russia, he put that deal together. And Zarif, who was secretly visited by Senator Rand Paul in July in New York at the residence of the Iranian ambassador, at that point in time, Rand Paul said, look, why don't you go to the Oval Office and meet with Trump, which didn't fly with the supreme leader in Iran. But within two weeks after that, then all of a sudden, Foreign Minister Zarif was sanctioned personally by the United States. Hmm. So, you know, you look at one of it, Tom, and why did Trump agree to have Rand Paul request the meeting? Then why was Zarif sanctioned? Now Zarif shows up, the foreign minister, at the invitation of President Macron, and we now find out that President Trump knew Zarif was coming. Right. He knew that. At first, supposedly he didn't. So uh, do we know for sure that Trump knew that Rand Paul was going to meet with him? Oh, Trump approved it. Yeah, Rand Paul has now admitted on the golf course, President Trump said, yeah, okay. Huh. <laughs> Rand Paul turned to him and said, how about I invite Zarif, Javed Zarif, the foreign minister, to come to the Oval Office? And President Trump said yes. So when Rand Paul met with Zarif in New York, friends of mine have confirmed this, Rand Paul then said, I want to invite you to the Oval Office. President Trump knows. And Zarif said sure, and then the White House said no. And well, then when the White House was silent, the Supreme Leader in Iran said not at this time. Uh-huh. And then within a couple of weeks, 
the United States personally sanctions Zarif personally. So was the sanctions a punishment for not coming to the White House? Well, here's what I think, and this is the rest of this story. I believe that the sanctions were instituted by John Bolton then, convincing the president he didn't come here, we need to sanction him. So not Trump himself, but Bolton. Right. Now Zarif, Javed Zarif, shows up here at the G7. The foreign minister shows up at the request of Macron. We find out within the last hour that President Trump knew, because supposedly he didn't. He knew Zarif was coming, and he didn't. So is this protest. Trump going around Bolton? Yes. That's getting to the shocking point, because when Trump was, and think about the psyche of President Trump, when Trump was asked about this surprise visit of the foreign minister of Iran, you know what his comment was? I don't have a comment. Right. Tell me the last time initially. you ever heard that said. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what he initially said. Then he said, you know, Macron asked me if it was okay, and I said yes, and then Macron kind of said, no, I didn't ask his permission, and, then, didn't ask. and then Trump came out and said, I was informed, or words to that effect. Right. And now there's a back and forth. Now, here's the other thing. This is for a quote from Trump. He is not seeking regime change in Iran. He said this country's been through that many times. That's completely contrary to John Bolton. And on the heels of all of this, Israel has shot down a, quote, Iranian killer drone based in Syria. And the reason that's significant Israel rarely announces it shoots down anything, right. and it did in this case, because what you're going to see now, I predict to you, you're going to see Netanyahu, and you're going to see Bolton, and a cast of other characters, the Dick Cheney's of the world, going absolutely crazy at the fact of Trump agreeing to even have Zarif at the conference. That's what you're going to see, trying to sabotage all of this. Because these guys because want a war with Iran. Oh, yes, absolutely. They want a war with Iran. And then here was the last statement the president made. Iran is not the same country it was two and a half years ago, suggesting that now is less of a threat. Well, that's because of the Obama nuclear deal. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Right. Interesting. Well, you know, if he can pull something out, even if it's just to satisfy his ego, I'm all in favor of it. I, you know, if he can make, yes. if he can bring peace. Well, Bolton won't have it, so yeah, we'll see I, what happens. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. Bob Nate. Thank you, Bob. Yes, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Defying Hitler by Sebastian Hafner, a memoir. This is from Chapter 17, about a little more than a third of the way into the book. At first, the revolution only gave the impression of being an historical event like any other, a matter for the press that might just possibly have some effect on the public mood. The Nazis celebrate January 30th as their day of revolution. They are wrong. There was no revolution on January 30th, 1933, just a change of government. Hitler became chancellor, by no means the Fuhrer of the Nazi regime. The cabinet contained only two Nazis apart from him. He swore an oath of allegiance to the Weimar Constitution. The general opinion was that it was not the Nazis who had won, but the bourgeois parties of the right who had captured, in quotes, the Nazis and held all the key positions in the government. In constitutional terms, events had taken a much more conventional, unrevolutionary course than most of what had happened during the previous six months. Outwardly, also, the day had no revolutionary aspects, unless one considers a Nazi torchlight procession through Wilhelmstrasse or a minor gunfight in the suburbs that night as signs of a revolution. For most of us outsiders, the experience of January 30, 1933, was that of reading the papers and the emotions we felt while we were doing so. The morning headline was, Hitler called to president. That produced a certain nervous, impotent irritation. 
Hitler had been called to the president in August and November. He had been offered the vice chancellorship and then the chancellorship. Both times he had set impossible conditions and both times there had been solemn declarations. Never again. Each time, never again had lasted exactly three months. Hitler's opponents in Germany at that time suffered from a compulsive urge to offer him everything he wanted, indefatigably, and at an even cheaper price, indeed to press it upon him. It's the same now with his opponents outside Germany. Again and again this appeasement was formally renounced, and again and again it gaily reappeared at the crucial moment, just so today. Then, as now, one's only hope was Hitler's own unreasonableness. Would it not sooner or later exhaust the patience of his opponents? Then, as now, it became apparent that their patience no, knew no bounds. At midday, the headline said, Hitler makes impossible demands. We nodded, half reassured. It was only too credible. It would have gone against his nature to ask for less than, than too much. Perhaps the cup had once more passed from us. Hitler, the last defense against Hitler. At about five o'clock, the evening papers arrived. Cabinet of National Unity formed, formed Hitler Reichschancellor. I don't know what the general reaction was. For about a minute, mine was completely correct. Icy horror. Certainly, this had been a possibility for a long time. You had to reckon with it. Nevertheless, it was so bizarre, so incredible to read it now in black and white. Hitler Reichschancellor. For a moment, I physically sensed the man's odor of blood and filth, the nauseating approach of a man-eating animal, its foul, sharp claws in my face. Then I shook the sensation off, tried to smile, started to consider, and found many reasons for reassurance. That evening, I discussed the prospects of the new government with my father. We agreed it had a good chance of doing a lot of damage, but not much chance of surviving very long. A deeply reactionary government with Hitler as, as its mouthpiece. Apart from this, it did not really differ much from the two governments that had succeeded Brunings. Even with the Nazis, it would, have been, it would not have a majority in the Reichstag. Of course, that could always be dissolved, but the government had a clear majority of the population against it, in particular the working class, which would probably go communist now that the Social Democrats had completely discredited themselves. One could prohibit the communists, but, one could, but that would only make one, them more dangerous. In the meantime, the government would be likely to implement reactionary social and cultural measures with some anti-Semitic additions to please Hitler. That would not attract any of its opponents to its side. Foreign policy would probably be a matter of banging the table. There might be an attempt to rearm. That would automatically add the outside world to the 60% of the home population who were against the Hitler government. Besides, who were the people who had suddenly started voting Nazi in the last three years? misguided ignoramuses for the most part, victims of propaganda, a fluctuating mass that would fall apart at the first disappointment. No, all things considered, this government was not a cause for alarm. The only question was what would come after it. It was possible that they would drive the country to civil war. The communists were capable of going on the attack before a prohibition against them came into force. The next day this turned out to be the general opinion of the intelligent press. It is curious how plausible an argument it is, even today, when we know what came next. How could things turn out so completely different? Perhaps it was just because we were all so certain that they could not do so, and relied on that with far too much confidence. So we neglected to consider that it might, if worse came to worse, be necessary to prevent the disaster from happening. 
Through the whole of February 1933, everything that happened remained a matter for the press. In other words, it took place in an arena that would lose all reality for 99% of the population in the moment there were no newspapers. Admittedly, enough occurred in that arena. The Reichstag was dissolved. Then in a flagrant breach of the Constitution, Hindenburg also dissolved the Prussian regional parliament. There were fast and furious changes of personnel in the civil service, the book defying Hitler. So back in uh, February of 1868, after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, for his second term, he had picked Andrew Johnson, a southern slave owner, to be his vice president. And he wanted a southern slave owner on the ticket with him so that after the Civil War, they could present a united front. It's me, Abe Lincoln. I mobilized the Union Army and won the Civil War. And it's Andrew Johnson, my vice president, who is a a southerner and a, and a slave owner, former slave owner, I guess, because they were emancipated, who is joining me. And so we are reaching out to the whole country. This was Lincoln's great idea. And, you know, it turns out it wasn't such a great idea. But in any case, Lincoln got assassinated and Andrew Johnson wanted to do all kinds of things. But the first thing that he wanted to do was purge his cabinet of, of Lincoln loyalists uh, particularly Ed, Edward Stanton, Edwin Stanton, the, uh, the Secretary of War, what we would now call the Secretary of Defense, and uh, do so uh, to put in his own, his own little toadies who would help him blow up uh, the whole you know, process of uh, Reconstruction down in the South. So Congress passed a law, it was titled An Act Regulating the Tenure of Certain Civil Offices. And what this law said was that, basically, that, that if a member of the, of the cabinet, in this case Stanton, uh, had been approved by the Senate after being proposed by the president, Stanton was proposed by Lincoln, it was, he was confirmed by the Senate, that the president couldn't just fire them, that the Senate had to agree to that too. Now, you know, that law... It no longer exists, and frankly, I don't know if it was struck down by the Supreme Court or if it expired or if it got replaced, but Johnson went ahead and fired Stanton anyway and installed his own guy anyway. And most of the articles of impeachment against Andrew Johnson specifically talk about this fact, that he defied Congress, Congress passed this law, he defied Congress, and therefore he should be impeached, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he did this, Andrew Johnson did this, he defied Congress with speeches and rallies to Southerners, you know, of which he was one, uh, basically, you know, building his base, as it were, which leads us to, I mean, here, Article 9, for example, it's, it says, boy, it is all, it is a long one. Um, uh, Article one, base, or Article nine, basically, you know, continues with this thing and talks about how, uh, in contravention of the commission, uh, in which provisional law, the, the, blah, blah, said Andrew Johnson then and there, well knew with intent thereby to induce said Emory in his official capacity as commander of the Department of Washington to violate the provisions of said act and to take and receive act upon and obey such orders as he, Andrew Johnson, this is the guy who, re who replaced Stanton. Um, so anyhow, we get to Article ten. And Article 10, that said Andrew Johnson, President of the United States, unmindful 
of the high duties of his office and the dignities and the proprieties thereof, and of the harmony and courtesies which ought to exist and to be maintained between the executive and legislative branches of the government of the United States, designing and intending to set aside the rightful authority and powers of Congress, did attempt to bring into disgrace, ridicule, hatred, contempt, and reproach the Congress of the United States to impair and destroy the regard and respect of all the good people of the United States for the Congress and legislative powers thereof, and to excite the odium and resentment of all the good people of the United States against Congress and the laws by it duly and constitutionally enacted. And in pursuance of his said design and intent, openly and publicly, and before diverse assemblages of the citizens of the United States, convened in diverse parts thereof to meet and receive said Andrew Johnson as the Chief Magistrate of the United States, did, on the 18th day of August in the year of our Lord 1866, and on diverse other days and times, as well before as afterward, Andrew Johnson did make and deliver with a loud voice certain intemperate, inflammatory, and scandalous harangues, and did therein utter loud threats and bitter menaces, as well against Congress, as the laws of the United States duly enacted thereby, amid the cries, jeer, and laughter of the multitudes, then assembled and in hearing. Period. That is the entirety of Article 10 of the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. There were 11 articles in total. Tell me this isn't like going on right now? I mean, as I said, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors, when you, when you read the articles of impeachment against Andrew Johnson, and, and, and uh, tip of the hat to Sue uh, Nethercutt, who does our, our newsletter, who, who gave me the link to it yesterday on Twitter, and, and uh, it, it wasn't until after I got off the air that I really had the time to read this. Uh, but, you know, I mean, even Article 1, right, that said Andrew Johnson, President of the United States, on the 21st day of February in the year of our Lord, 1868, at Washington, the District of Columbia, unmindful of the high duties of his office, of his oath of office, and of the requirement of the Constitution that he should take care that the laws be faithfully executed, did unlawfully and in violation of the Constitution and laws of the United States issue an order in writing for the removal of Edwin Stanton from the office of Secretary of the Department of War. Uh, Edwin M. Stanton being then and there Secretary of the Department of War and then and there being in due and lawful execution and discharge of the office of said office, whereby said Andrew Johnson, President of the United States, did there and then commit and was guilty of a high misdemeanor in office. And then they use that phrase over and over and over again in all these articles of impeachment. I mean, we really need to learn our history. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 